Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. When the COVID-19 pandemic shut down everything in March of 2020, thousands upon thousands of comedians suddenly experienced the existential dilemma that comedian Mike Birbiglia had depicted in his 2016 movie, Don't Think Twice. Birbiglia himself didn't think twice, however, quickly starting a nationwide fundraising campaign called Tip Your Waitstaff, with proceeds going to the employees of comedy clubs suddenly shuttered for who knows how long. His conversations with other comedians has prompted Birbiglia to start his own podcast, Working It Out, in which he and other stand-ups riff on premises with hopes of turning them into full comedy routines. Birbiglia already has successfully mined his own life and observations for four one-man shows, Sleepwalk With Me, My Girlfriend's Boyfriend, Thank God for Jokes, and The New One. The first he adapted into a feature film. The latter three he filmed for Netflix, and the newest one, so to speak, also has a new book that includes more poetry from his wife, J. Hope Stein. You may have heard him tell his stories on Ira Glass's This American Life, or... You may recognize him from the movie Trainwreck or from his TV roles in Girls, Broad City, Orange is the New Black, and Billions. So let's get to it! So Mike, uh, Berbiglia, thank you for finally joining me. I've been trying to uh, podcast with you for quite some time now. It's been about 25 years that we've been planning this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we finally and, made it happen. And, uh, and I have to uh, thank you again for your flexibility. I know you're performing at a racetrack later. Oh, oh, am I ever. I'm a racetrack. I've always been known as a racetrack comedian. Uh, <laughs> it's, I've just always been seen, seen as a the racehorse of comedy. And uh, so now I'm, I'm in a good spot. No, it's, uh, yeah, Mulaney and I did it a few weeks ago, the Monmouth Range, Racetrack in New Jersey. It's like outdoors, distanced. And then, then I, did a, I, I did an outdoor one with Mulaney and Pete Davidson uh, in Connecticut the other night. That was fun. And then I did one outdoors in Connecticut with Sam Jay the other night. That was fun. And then tonight's with Hasan Minaj. Actually, all, uh, almost all of these people I'm, just, I'm mentioning have been guests on the podcast. So that sort of ties into what we're talking about. But yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm completely on board for the outdoor comedy experience right now. Like, I feel like, I feel like it's safe. I feel like people are being responsible. It, it feels like a, like a potentially what we're looking at for the next year. What, what do you think it says about this year and the coming year that all of the gigs that traditionally were, were thought of by comedians as hell gigs are now the only gigs, whether it's, isn't that, isn't that funny? It really is. It's, I, I am, I think, uniquely qualified for this moment because I think I've done more hell gigs than anyone I know. And so when, I, when I'm doing uh, a show like on a rooftop, open air rooftop somewhere, I'm like, yeah, I can make this work. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I'm not like all bets are off. Like, I think I, you know, I think that they're, I've just done a lot of hard gigs because I, I came up as a road comic. Like I didn't come up as like, I don't know, whatever. It's, it's, uh, 
And I, I will say this, I mean, and I'll say this to my fellow comedians who are, who are doing these things is like the audiences I'm finding are very appreciative that we're, do, that we're doing anything at all. Cause I think they know that we could sort of just sit it out and, and cause it is, it is compromising. Like the sound isn't quite as good. And the, this, you know, the lighting isn't quite as good, but like in general, like I feel like there is a sense of like, from the audience of like, Hey, thanks for trying. Like just the trying at all is something. Right. Uh, before we, before I ask you about your current project, I, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, talk to you a little bit more about the movie you made a few years ago. Don't think twice. Oh my God. Because the, the, the most, the most prophetic movie of all time. <laughs> It was a movie four years ago about one improv troupe trying to figure out what to do when its theater shuts down. And now thousands upon thousands of improvisers are going through that same dilemma right now. Like what, Horrible. what happens when your way of life as you knew it is no longer possible, when the dream has to be amended? I'll preface my answer by saying that the movie I was writing as the follow-up to Don't Think Twice, and I'm not kidding, was about a global pandemic. I'm not kidding. <laughs> it was a comedy that took place in a global pandemic. And the reason why I was writing it was that my editor, Jeffrey Richmond, who edited Sleepwalk With Me and Don't Think Twice, every day in the edit, we'd have, we'd have lunch and for Don't Think Twice. And he, and often I would get chicken and rice or whatever it was, and he would never get chicken. I would say, you want to try this? No, I don't eat chicken. Finally, I go, how come you don't eat chicken? He goes, I did a food documentary. And I think there's going to be a bird flu pandemic based on the footage I saw. Like the, I think the odds are like pretty high. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, shit. You know, like... I, and so I started reading about the possibilities of pandemics. And this was, you know, Bill Gates was way ahead of this and everything. But, like, the more I started reading about it, the more I was like, oh, this is totally going to happen. It's just, it's not an if, it's a when. And so I just started writing this movie about essentially a global pandemic. And it's a comedy. It's sort of like, it's sort of in the spirit of, like, I always called it, like, children of men meets, like, Kirby enthusiasm, where it's, like, completely insane, but then also it's sort of funny in, uh, in like everyday observational mundane. And um, now that this is happening, I don't think I'm going to make the movie. Cause I, I think that when, when we're done with this, I think people are going to be sick of it. I think people are going to be like, I'm out, I'm out. I don't want to, I don't want to see movies about pandemics. I don't want to, you know what I mean? Like I, I just want to escape. Well, that, um, that, that's a testament to your morality that you wouldn't immediately try to cash in. <sighs> It's not morality. Honestly, it's like you make the movies that you want to see. And I feel like I did want to see that movie. And now I don't want to see that movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so in terms of the improv thing, it's really sad. You know, it's like I.O. is closed in Chicago right now. And, and, and UCB is closed, obviously. And... <sighs> It's really sad. It's, it, 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 it's uh, because not only are these organizations great theaters that put out great work, and, but they train like tons of people and it's a community for like, like is represented in the movie. 
don't think twice. It's like, it's, it's people's friend group and it's, it's sort of how they connect. And like, and so, yeah, I didn't want to be prophetic, but I did also, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, I did. Yeah. I, I'm sort of speechless by it. It's very sad, but I also think like the, the silver lining of it is like, I think that new, you know, when this all ends, different improv companies will form and different things will, uh, you know, and, and they'll be potentially more evolved and they'll be better in regards to race and they'll be better in regards to gender and, and all that kind of stuff that, that like the country is, is facing right now. So, so, so maybe that's the silver lining. Right. That's the hope that, that as some of my friends call it, the great pause. Yes allows us to reflect on what we're doing and come out of it with a, with a more focused, perhaps better idealistic ambition. Yeah. And I think people for years, people always had some, some reservations about some of those improv theater practices of like various things. And, and, and I think that if all these new theaters emerge after this, I think they'll kind of keep that in mind, which is very good if that happens. Right. Well, and you also managed in your movie to write yourself as a character who is slightly questionable. As well. I did not mean to. I <laughs> I didn't even want to be. I didn't even want to be in the movie. <laughs> I um, I I I definitively. I would have these readings at my house and or in my apartment in New York, and I would and I would invite people like you know filmmakers like oz and brian koppelman and and others greta gerwig came to one of them like it was like a bunch of like people i really respect and i would just get notes and we'd read the screenplay i get notes and that's sort of how i developed both of my movies and and uh the i i would sometimes i'd play the keegan character and sometimes i would play my character miles those would be the two characters I'd play. Maybe sometimes I'd play Chris Gethard's character, but the, th- the three male characters, one of them I'd play, or I'd just sit it out. And at a certain point, it was funny because my friend Yorma Chacone was like, you gotta play Jack, the Keegan character. Like, that's gotta be you. Like, you're, it's your movie. Like, you know. <laughs> you're the protagonist of your own movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, it's your movie. You, why would you give that part? The part's so good. Why would you give that to somebody else? And I was like, well, I'd give it to somebody else because I would never be cast on Saturday Night Live. And so it's not believable that I would be in the, like in a movie. And, but Keegan-Michael Key would and, and, and probably was, maybe he, I don't even know the full story, but I think maybe he was offered SNL or he was, you know, but he was doing mad TV and he couldn't, the, the point being, I needed a brilliant sketch comedian. And then, and then I was going to maybe not be in the movie at all, but then my friends, like Brian Koppelman was like, you have to play Miles because it's very, a funny side of you, which is like bitter. Like you being like bitter and like complainy is funny. And he's like, and you're not going to get someone who could do those lines in that way. And so I was like, okay, I can, I think I, I'll do that. And then, yeah, his character, I mean, the, the Miles character is completely questionable. I mean, he's sort of an amalgam of a lot of people who I've met over the years um, who 
you know, feel like they, they're mistreated by the industry. And meanwhile, they're mistreating every other people in the industry. <laughs> like everything about him is sort of like <laughs> flawed. Right. Um, how, how, how did that movie and then, you know, the pandemic we're all going through, how, how has that affected your own goals in terms of what you want to achieve and what you want to pursue as an, as an artist and as a comedian? One of the things, I mean, the, the Working It Out podcast has, has forced me to basically write a new five minutes of stand-up every week, which is great. It, it's, a, it's, it's, like it's, it's kind of like early in my career, I wrote my secret public journal, which was like went out to my email list, and then I would, re- I would read it on the Bob and Tom radio show, which is a syndicated radio show. And it would be sort of a writing assignment for myself, which is great. And, um, and so the podcast has forced me to be like, okay, I'm just going to write like eh, three or four minutes of new material every week. And, and so now I have like a stockpile of like two or three hours of material, but I've not that many audiences to try it with. <laughs> it's just like, but, but I have like these great like sounding boards and minds like Hannah Gadsby and David Sedaris and all these people who, who really like stoke my brain and, and, and help me think about these things in ways that like, I like that's the best thing about having a podcast is that like, I know David Sedaris, but I'm not going to call, I'm not going to call him and be like, Hey, can I run like 10 ideas past you? You know what I mean? Like, or, or Hannah Gadsby, like I could be in touch with Hannah Gadsby, but like, I don't, I feel like I don't want to bother her. You know what I mean? But if I have this podcast and it's like, I'm plugging her new special or I'm plugging David's book, like then it gives me an excuse to spend an hour talking about our things that we're working on. And it, it's kind of great in that way. Um, like even the, Judd, even the Judd Apatow episode, like it was great to have him on and have him be like, hey, try out that, you know, do that Brie Larson thing that you like have said to me before, which is all this whole thing about how people get mad on the internet. They're like, Brie Larson plays Mike Birbiglia's wife in, in Trainwreck, like <laughs> in what universe, you know? And it's like movies, you know, movies <laughs> are made up. The, same the universe Judd Apatow where, universe. Yeah, exactly. The same universe where a medium-sized alien eats peanut butter candies. It's like, it's not real. And, uh, and, so, and so like, because Judd was on, he was like, what do, what's that bit? You know, like, cause it's a bit, it's a, it's a thing that he and I joke about sometimes on the phone or something. And so I don't know, like, I think having all these different people on, like it, each one like brings out a different side of me and I bring out a different side of them potentially. So just for the record, according to what you just said, a medium sized alien is ET. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> that's medium size for aliens. Isn't he medium size? I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, or you could say he's small, but I would, I would think of small as being like a fish-sized alien, which very well might be what we're looking at in, on Venus or, or whatever the planet was they, mm-hmm. they found pictures of the other day. But E.T. is, ET is medium for you. <laughs> I think he's medium. I mean, I think like the, the aliens in the movie who are on the ship mm-hmm. in E.T., they're huge, I think. Like, I'm pretty sure they're... Oh, no, they, they look like him. I'm sorry. They look like him. Yeah. They look like him. They look like him. Right, were you thinking of the Close Encounters aliens? No, I was, yeah, yeah. I was thinking of the Close Encounters aliens. And then I was also thinking of um, the movie Alien. Ah, yes. 
Which well, that alien some... grows in size. He grows. He grows. Yeah. Spoiler alert. And and I think Predator? Alien ver- oh, Alien versus Predator. That's what I was thinking of too. Right. Predator those are more human sized. <laughs> yes. So human size is, is larger than <laughs> is larger than medium sized alien. And but they would all marry Mike Birbiglia in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's the important part. So because before- <laughs> because it's a movie. Right. <laughs> because yeah. it's a movie. Yeah, yeah. Not real life. So back in real life. For, and also for citizenship. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Human citizenship. Yes. Uh, yeah, the, the, the A's in DACA are about different aliens, not about, that's right, that's right. Not about exactly. medium-sized aliens. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, so, but, but back to real life. Yes, let's get back to real life. Working it out, that was what you always called your... Your workshop shows. shows yeah, at, at you've, you've been, and you've, you've been to those before. Yeah, so yeah, the dynamic of that is, of course, different because you're, you're testing your material on crowds of a medium size. That's 100% 50, true. 50, 100 people. Yep, that's and right. Now, and now you're just one-on-one work, workshopping them. But for thousands of people listening. True. It, which is odd, which is odd because it's like, I don't know if people realize this fully, but comedians really go out of their way to hide their material before it's done and not disclose it. And that's why people have yonder pouches so that you can't record the show because they don't want it to sort of leak out. And so the podcast is actually something I would never have done pre-pandemic because it's, it goes against everything I believe in terms of you need to withhold material. Even like over the years, I've had this thing where like, I'll do like a story on This American Life and then people will come to my shows and they'll go and they'll write like in the comments or whatever. They'll be like, I already know that story from This American Life, you know? And I'm sort of like, how many stories do you want from me? Like, I don't know. Like, like, like I, I'm doing my best here. But, but yeah, you know, and so like, even with last, the last show, the new one, I don't know if this is not something I I ever noted in an interview until now, but it's like, I didn't do any of the stories in the new one, um, on this American life. I didn't put any of them on because I wanted people to come in with a completely clean slate, no matter how much they were following what I was doing. Right. Um, so yeah, that, but that, but this is the opposite of that. This is like developing like three or four hours of material. And then when I go on tour outdoors in the spring, cause I'm like starting to plan like a spring, like outdoor tour, maybe drive an RV across the country. Like I am, I'm going to like try to go out with like three or four hours of memorized material and then sort of like perform whatever comes out, which I've never done. I think it's sort of what Robin Williams used to do. Sometimes he'd do it with other people's material, but, but, <laughs> but, but most of it was his. Um, but I think like, but I love, I actually love that kind of a performer where like you don't know what they're going to do because they sort of don't know what they're going to do. Right. You're, you're truly in the moment. Yeah. And the Working It Out podcast though, that, that, that evolved out of the Instagram live sessions you were doing with comedians to raise money for comedy clubs. Tip your weight, tip your weight staff. Yeah. Tip your weight yeah. Staff, so, yep. So th- how did, how did that make you comfortable with, with the idea of revealing more of yourself? 
in those. So, so, so basically tip your weight staff was, was because I was driving home from, I was on my way to Buffalo helium comedy club. And then I was listening to all the science reports on the radio. And then I was like, okay, I'm heading home. Like, this is no good. This is like in March. Like, they were basically saying, like, the one thing you shouldn't do is gather in groups. And I was like, um, I don't think that I should be driving to a city and gathering a group together, you know? And so I drove home and I was like, well, what, what is it? What are the, what are the clubs going to do? And of course, we're, they're still dealing with that now. What are the clubs going to do? What's the wait staff going to do? What's the, you know, and, and so I, I was on the phone with Mulaney. I was on the phone with Roy Wood Jr., who all shared similar concerns. And then we were like, what about, we have this thing called tip your weight staff. And, and, and I'll just do these Instagram lives with people. And, and we did like 30 of them. We raised like over half a million dollars. This, this company in Boston donated their time to build a website that has like geo, tar, you know, geo whatever. Uh, it should, you know, it, you put in your zip and it sort of shows you the closest comedy club to you where you can give to the GoFundMe. And all the GoFundMes combined raised like, I think $600,000 or something like that. And, and are, some of them are still going, and um, including like 100000 for the Comedy Cellar in New York, and, which is sort of my home club. And, and, uh, and then at a certain point, it was sort of like, I did it, I think, through, through May. But it's this weird thing where, and I'm sure you're experiencing this too, where remember back in March, it was like, okay, so we just have to stay indoors until the end of April. And then it's like, <laughs> we just have to stay indoors through the end of May. And then it's like, we just have to stay indoors for the rest of our lives, you know? And, and then at a certain point you're like, well, what are we going to, what am I going to do? Like, I can't just Instagram live for the rest of my life. Like this is crazy. And so I developed this concept called working it out as a podcast, which the goal of it was like, okay, the, the capture the fun of the Instagram lives, but to like properly record it and have high sound quality and to edit it. So it's not boring and it doesn't lag and like, and just sort of properly produce it so that it doesn't feel like quarantine content. Like, I think that's one of the problems that we're dealing with in entertainment right now is people are like, we're going to do a th- virtual blah, blah, blah. And it's like, that seems like for most of them, it's just like, that seems horrible. It doesn't seem like that's like a fun thing to do. It feels like you're just doing that because we can't do anything else. And so you're sort of like, you know, the effort is there, but you, but you, but the production value is not there. And so I wanted my goal with the podcast is like, I'm going to learn sound. I'm going to, you know, learn how to record myself professionally. I'm going to record people on on the guests on their end professionally. We're going to have a sound mixer, Kate Belinsky, you know, who, who does things like serial, like, like mix it properly. Jack Antonoff wrote a song for it. We're going to just have it feel like a nicely produced podcast that you would hear not in the pandemic. That makes sense. Yeah. And you have great guests. Like you have Jimmy Kimmel the week, the week leading up to his hosting the Emmys. So it's, and now this is just going to be this, this is going to be the new stop for, for (laughs) the the Emmy host. (laughs) What have, what have you, uh, what have you learned from not just from talking with with comedians on the podcast but also just from having to deal with this new abnormal like everybody else about the role of the comedian 
in, in social discourse. Yeah, that's an odd, I think that's an odd thing. Like what, what is the example you're thinking of? Uh, well, the most recent one that comes to mind is, is how Jim Gaffigan pivoted with his social right. media and the, the extreme reactions on, on the different political sides to it. I know you're very, you, you've been very political on there. I, I know, but and the, I don't want, as you know, I don't want to be. Like, I, I really don't want to talk about politics. I know Jim Gaffigan really doesn't want to talk about politics. And I think that it's just such an all-out state of emergency in terms of, like, if there's a second term of this, we may end up in a completely different, with a completely different set of laws, people who are above the law, uh, a little bit more like, like a dictatorship, which, which I think is the concern, which is why people like Jim and, and myself and, and, and others have been really sounding the alarm of like, we, we, we have to, we, we have to do what we can to, to get people to vote. How, <laughs> and by that, by that same token, you also have comedians at this very same time, complaining that they can't speak out because of quote unquote cancel culture. Yeah. It, it makes me wonder how do comedians break? I mean, comedians are supposed to, by design, observe what's going on in the world, observe the crazy things and point them out. But how does that change hearts and minds or should it even change hearts and minds? I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think that there's there's concerns about sort of cancel culture, and then there's concerns about uh, free speech and that you're not allowed to say things, that kind of thing. I think that there's some validity to that, but I also think some of it is overblown. And, and therein lies, like, I think one of the conundrums of this moment in time, which is to say that, like, for the most part, you can say whatever you want, but there will be consequences to you saying whatever you want. And now the consequences are very public because it's just like people, you know, everybody has a platform to Twitter, Instagram, whatever it is. And so if you, if you say something that makes people mad, they can gather a consortium of people and rally people to be like, we hate this guy or we hate this person and and like and, and i think for comedians they're like but i'm allowed to say whatever i want it's like you are but also those people can say whatever they want you know what i mean like and both of those things are true and and so it's weird because it's like like at some point it's just it's going to evolve but i don't know what direction it's going to evolve into because it doesn't feel sustainable currently no it doesn't and as i told you before i hit record (laughs) sorry i've been watching the social dilemma documentary on on netflix and uh it just reinforces all of my uh cynicism or despair about about how these platforms, which were intended for good and intended to elevate voices, but it's yeah, also yeah, yeah. created such a cacophony or a, a tower of I think Babel it moment. It is. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's completely true. And I think like 
can't like if you look think about cancel like people say it's cancel culture but it's like if you look at how many people have been actually canceled like literally like they don't have a job anymore as opposed to like they've just been made to feel bad by a group of strangers on the internet which is real by the way like i'm yeah. not i'm not minimizing that <laughs> like i've had that happen to me and it's horrible like i said like i was i wouldn't even say what the thing was but <laughs> i was quoted out of context on social media like a while ago and people like screenshotted it and decontextualized it and then it became like a whole thing where i like left Twitter for like a week. I was just like, okay, I'm completely out of this because I, people have just run with this idea that I said an opinion, but actually it isn't my opinion. And so I, there's literally nothing I can say because the mob, like the mob ran away with it. Like they just tumbled away and they were just like, yeah, fuck that guy. And so I sympathize with people who feel that cancel culture can be dangerous, but I also, would 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 caution people's overuse of the term cancel culture because it's for the most part like there's very few people who are canceled like even like you look at like like someone who people are really critical of on twitter all the time constantly to the point where she's trending all the time is jk rowling people constantly are furious about J.K. Rowling and I think her new book. I'm not that familiar with like the new book or whatever, but like she's, she's all, she's not canceled. Nope. You know what I mean? Like she's still whatever. I don't know what she does. I'm not like a Harry Potter (laughs) person, but like I, (laughs) she writes a lot of stuff. She's an extremely accomplished writer who continues to write and publish and she's not canceled. And people are really angry at her and they have every right to be angry with her. And she has every right to write what she's writing and they have every right to be angry. And actually that's all fine. It's actually technically like what discourse is. It's just very unwieldy with the quantity of opinions that we're supposed to digest simultaneously. Right. Like Woody Allen had his book canceled, but then it came out through another <clears throat> publisher. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. had a film pulled and he lost a bunch of money that he had put into that movie. But then he came back and self-financed a tour. So it's... And, and put out a special. Put out right. a comedy special. So... And, and so it's like... I, I mean, and, and then, of course, there's people who are uncancelable, like Joe Rogan, because, like, the, he, because the people who he are, are his fans don't really believe in cancellation. So, like, they will continue to be his fans regardless of what he says, you know? And so, like... I don't know. I think it's, I think it's overblown, but I also think like there is like, there is like a degree of um, there's so much hyperbole on social media that it, 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 it's disconcerting to spend a lot of time on social media because I think you can get caught up in the hyperbole of it and start to think that the hyperbole is, is normal. Indeed. Uh, Mike, I know you have a, a gig at the racetrack and I don't want to keep you. From I do. I got to drive to the racetrack. One, one last question. Uh, can I get to breaking news scoop? Will you, or will you not be live tweeting season 46 of SNL? Oh my gosh. I haven't live tweeted in a few years. So <laughs> I know because, because <laughs> I, you know, I stopped live tweeting SNL 
because I, I was live tweeting because I was a fan and I was just watching it. And then I was like, oh, it'd be fun if I just wrote what I was liking the most in real time. And that kind of thing. And, and then a lot of people noticed I was doing it or whatever. <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then I stopped because one night I said a comment that a bunch of people quoted out of context and retweeted and blah, blah, blah. And a whole mob of people came at me. That was another instance of that. And then I was like, oh, okay, I'm not live tweeting anything ever again. And right. I'm not going to, and again, I'm not <laughs> going to tell you what the thing was. Right. Because I don't want that to be people to go after that. And, and, but live tweeting is a bad idea in general. Like live tweeting is, it's a dangerous business. Okay. So no live tweeting, but please go check out Mike's podcast, Working It Out. Uh, and his, but, I'm in, uh, but I'm in full support of SNL. I love SNL. As a matter of fact, one of my fondest pre-pandemic memories is being with my friend John Mulaney when he hosted SNL, I think in February. Yeah, that was like the last night that I was out and about in New York City, and it was a spectacular night. And then uh, our lives were changed forever. <laughs> so, oh check, my gosh. so check out Saturday Night Live with or without the tweets of Bert Biggs. Yeah, uh, yeah. Check out his podcast, Working It Out, and uh, his great Broadway show, which was filmed for Netflix, the new one. Thank you. In the book, in the book is in stores, curbside. Which includes poems. Poems from J-Hope Stein, my wife. Yep. Yes. Chloe. Chloe or Jen. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks, John. I Thank appreciate you so much, it. Mike. I'm glad we made this work. Me too. Thank you so much. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, local by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Last things first. Last things first.